Welcome to Vino Week, episode 41. All right, welcome to Vino 101. I'm Bill. Hello, everybody. It's Al. Ready to talk wine? Bill, yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing fine. How about yourself? Not too bad. Enjoying a little break from the rain at the moment. Yeah. Which we're very grateful for here in Sonoma County. We, we are happy for the rain and we'd like to see more of it. I think we're going to get some sun for a few days, so that'll be nice. Yeah, it's great. I was remarking to uh, uh, one of my one of my boys as we were driving in this, and he was he was saying, you know, it's been raining a lot. I'm like, this is normal for this time of year if you've lived here. And his remark back to me was, well, it's not normal for me since I've been yeah. alive. Exactly. <laughs> so that was yeah. His frame of reference is a little slanted. Yeah. Different. So, it was different. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I guess you could say it's a new normal. It's new for farmers, too, because uh, typically this is a time of year where you go out and you do all the pruning. And, um, you know, the way that you prune and how you prune affects um, this year's crop and also the next year's crop. Um, it's a little challenging if, you live, if your vineyards are located on River Road at this point, if you're near uh, the Russian River. You really aren't able to get in some of those vineyards because they're underwater. Yeah, so that's uh, so yeah. it's it's a it's a, a little bittersweet for maybe those people that are that are close to the river and uh, you know getting their their vineyard work done. They're gonna have to wait till it uh, gets a little drier. And you obviously you can't get a, a tractor or anything like that into the vineyard. So <laughs> no, you can uh, maybe get a raft though. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what a lot of these vineyards are doing now is, you know, the tractor thing is they're cutting down on the work because manpower is so difficult. Uh, they go through and they do a pre-cut of all the um, of all the canes with the tractor, and makes it a little bit easier for um, the workers when they come in. They're not they're not dealing with so much uh, so much of these big long gnarly canes. So they do, they do a little pre-cut, which is uh, that's a new thing that's happened over the past few years. Yeah, it, you know, it's all going to get, it's all going to get auto, you know, automation, mechanization at some point. Yeah, that's what they say. Yeah, I think it's going to, I don't know about the getting down to where you're cutting the, you know, you're cutting each individual cane and deciding how many buds you're going to leave on there. I think, I don't know, you know, I, I, what do they call it? Artificial intelligence. It's a long ways off for that one. You know? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> yeah, it, we could we can uh, we can drive a robot through the vineyard and shake the hell out of the vines and get all the all the grapes to fall off. You know, we got that part down. Yeah, <laughs> I there, there's a lot of uh, hype around AI, um, but there's certainly a lot of investment in making those. You know, trying to get. I, I would say. You know, you could characterize it, get the human out of the loop at some level, but I don't, you know, kind of to your point, I think there's things that people who are working the land, you have a relationship with it. So you see things that you know, I, I I think is going to be really hard to replicate with a computer or a robot. Well put. If you live on the land, you're going to know way more than a computer will ever know. Yeah, at least right now. You know, I mean, there could be a day, hopefully long, when I'm underground, that um, that the the 
the Borg or whatever it is knows everything. Probably won't even like wine. <laughs> anyway, on that on that lovely note, let's uh, let's dive into some wine topics, um, like the uh, I you know the cork taint uh, uh, post. It's a video and also an article. Um, is a great um, it's a great primer on on cork taint, and it there's you know the the one thing I think will resonate with a big uh, amount of people is smelling the cork. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it breaks that type of stuff down, and then it has all of the science behind it that you can understand, and it's in a video that's really well produced, um, and you can read it as well. Um, Al, I think you watched the video. I read the article. One of the things I liked about how um, they broke the article down is they broke the five things you need to know about it, and then within all of the text, there's there's highlighting around the key points. So if you need yeah. to skim the thing, if you don't want to read all the detail, there's the, you know, too long don't read section. Yeah. <laughs> the executive yeah. summary. Anyway. So so, I like the summary. That's, the summary is nice, actually. Yeah. So what else did you find interesting about, I, we could talk about smelling the cork, but what else uh, did you find interesting about this? Well, the whole the whole idea um, around cork taint, uh, probably one of the, the main things I found that was interesting. Well, first of all, cork taint is a couple of um, uh, just for our our, our listeners. Um, it's uh, it's something that uh, changes the um, the flavor and the texture uh, of the wine. And uh, you know, it's it's as far as winemakers, you know, they make a, they work real hard to make a product to be a certain way. And then um, the uh, molecules that are responsible for cork taint, they change that wine. So you get a different interpretation of what they're trying to give you when you buy the wine. And typically, I mean, it's a range of what it could be, but it could go from, I think we spoke about this last week, where the wine is, I call it dumb, where it doesn't really exude a whole bunch of flavors. It seems like it's a little bit flat. Um, You're like, you know what? what is this? Uh, you know, it's not, this wine isn't doing anything for me. I've run across that with bottles. Just recently I had a bottle of, um, of, um, wine from uh, Tuscany. It was mainly, um, Sangiovese. I bought like six bottles of it. So, and it's a pretty recognized producer. And I had a bottle, I want to say maybe three or four months ago, I opened it up and I was like, eh, what's the big deal here? You know, it's like there's not really much going on. And uh, I never thought about it at that moment, except I was really disappointed with the wine. And uh, it really never improved. But uh, I opened that same bottle. Here's the bottle right here. I opened it, uh, another bottle, maybe four or five days ago. And completely different from the previous bottle. Really, um, uh fruit forward. You could get all the vanilla component because it spent some time in French oak. Um, just very, very expressive in the black fruit and uh, the red fruits that came out of it. I really thought, I mean, like 100 degrees, uh, you know, 90 degrees different. Yeah, I was going to say significant, significant difference. Like, I mean, and very, an, very pronounced. Yeah, and that's an, exemp- that's an example of, of cork tank. So unless you have a, you know, if you're having a bottle and it's like, man, this is, ah, man, I don't know. 
the the one part about cork tank that you can notice that's really really noticeable is when it's when it's a large amount of it it smells like, like um you ever had well people don't have this anymore because pe people don't really subscribe to newspapers but back in the day if you had some newspapers you know maybe stuck outside your front door or in a room or something they got wet and damp that smell that you get from um cardboard that's been exposed to water it's kind of a moldy mildewy kind of smell yeah have that's you ever the, gotten so for all the millennials so have you ever picked up a uh, wet amazon box bang and you know the there smell we, yeah there we go i'm just trying to think through my kids <laughs> they wouldn't get the newspaper thing either yeah that's 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 cork taint at its highest degree and um, to your point, what I what I liked about this article is that he mentioned in one of the bodies of it was how some people, how, how everyone has a different uh, threshold for recognizing it, which is a big deal. So some people can smell it at one part per million and then other people can smell it at 20 parts per million. And some people can't even detect it at 100 parts per million. So it depends on your sensitivity to this particular um, molecule, which is a problem if you're in a restaurant. Say you're particularly sensitive to it. You order a bottle. The sommelier comes over, opens it up, presents it to you. You're tasting the wine, and you're like, "Ah, smells like moldy cardboard." You know, yeah. this bottle is this bottle is corked. Is what you say to the sommelier, and the sommelier, well, they're trained too, so they would like pull aside a glass, and they would maybe they would smell it, maybe they wouldn't. That's Which another. Is, sorry, I don't want to interrupt. No, this go ahead. Good. Another key point in the article, though, and this is how uh, well this article is done. If you're in a restaurant and that happens, or or if you buy a bottle and you get home and you open it and detect it, it is perfectly fine to take it back, and they will replace it. That's usually the rule of thumb. It's okay to send back. What do you yeah, say? People about that? are uh, people are afraid to do that, but. Uh, I don't think people that shop at Trader Joe's are afraid to do that, or people that shop at Costco. They know they can take anything back whenever they want, and yeah. they're going to know that yeah. the purveyor will. But I think with wine and beer, people, for some reason, it's it's been like you can't take that back or whatever. But you can, and because what what happens is, I mean, obviously you can't take it back if three quarters of the bottle is gone. That's a little suspicious. I didn't like this, but I drank three quarters of it. Yes, that's not the. No, the point is that you don't put the bad stuff in your mouth at all. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if possible, sometimes you have to taste it because yeah. maybe you're not so good at tasting it. But what happens is it's a pain in the butt for everyone that's in the chain. So you got the retailer. He's got to go back to the wholesaler. The wholesaler's got to go back to the producer. But they all eventually get compensated one way or the other. They're going to get compensated. So – you know, if, if you don't like the wine, if the wine is, is flawed, you can you can definitely send it back and you shouldn't be hassled by a reputable um, restaurant or, or a reputable retailer. That's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. And it, the um, uh, a point I, you know, a point you just said, too, I don't think many people know unless they they're in the business or have been around it. There is a chain here. So the retailer is fronting a lot of this eventually they're carrying the the burden of the cost so you know that little local shop has to go back to the 
you know, potentially multi levels of distribution to get their cash back. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, well, you, yeah, it's uh, and it's uh, it's it doesn't happen a whole lot. I no, mean, when I was in retail, you don't you don't see it happen very much, which makes me think a lot of people they probably consume a lot of bottles that are corked. I mean, because I've been at tastings, and you know, a lot of t- I mean, we go to tastings all the time, and you know. I'm laughing because you're being tasting and people are drinking. I'm like, I'm like, that's corked, and people are just slurping it down. This yeah. is great. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So, and that just goes to show you that that reiterates the point that you know the sensitivity level that you have for it, you know, goes into it also. Um, you know, you can. Um, this is a little trick that I learned. You can kind of save a wine. This is a little bit controversial, but yeah, ha- if you have a bottle that's corked. You can go ahead and put it in a decanter, or actually, before if you got a big wide decanter, stuff a whole bunch of um, cellophane in it, and then pour the wine in that, and just uh, let it sit in the cellophane for a while, or the saran wrap, I guess I should say, and then uh, decant it off of that. And sometimes that improves the wine. As weird as that is, I don't know the chemistry behind it, but uh, I've done that before and it works. So, so something, something must be. Something in the plastic and the cellophane yeah. must be pulling some yeah, out of the wine. It must act the, like a yeah. It attracts the the, the TCA mole, molecules and, and uh, gets them out of the wine. That's got it's got to be it. Yeah. Interesting. That's so, fascinating. Oh yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. An Uber. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty. So con- can, that's controversial for sure. So at the it's, end, there's this thing you asked about how to how to avoid cork tank, uh, cork tank. And I think you, I don't, you know, I don't think it can be entirely um, 100% avoided because what you have to remember is cork is wood, and depending on how much wood and what, you know, wineries have a lot of wood in them, so um, barrels or wood. Sometimes the racks that store the wine uh, are made of wood, um, although less so these days. Um, the building itself could be made of wood. So if you have a, a cork taint issue in your facility, you know, this stuff is this stuff is all in the air. You know, um, you know, TCA, the main thing is chlorine. Chlorine, you know, it's freely in the air. Like if you um, pour a glass of water out of your faucet on your sink, you can smell the chlorine that's come out of the water because it's in the air. It's just floating around. So it's it's not 100 percent sure that you can have, um, that you can get a cork-free wine. Say you just decide to go with screw caps, which are real popular in um, New Zealand, Australia. Just about all of the wines that come from there are are done in a, stu- uh, a screw cap or a stelvin. You could have a wine that's in a screw cap, and it could still be um, cork tainted because it's gotten the taint from somewhere else in the winery. So uh, anyway, um, but one way for sure to maybe minimize the amount of cork taint issues is to go with a Stelvin or even um, the Vinlock, which is a glass, the little glass uh, stopper. Glass enclosures, yeah. yeah. So there's many alternate, um, mm. many types. It seems to be m- many more types that I've encountered recently of uh, enclosures for wine. So artificial cork, you have your screw caps, you have these glass enclosures, um I'm trying to think if there's any other well alternate packaging as well. Um yeah, but still that's packaging. still 
you know, it's still to to your point. If the if there's cork taint in the winery, none of that will help. Yeah, and and wineries, the wine business in general can be a little bit stodgy, and the people that the the, the people that buy the most wine are you know probably um, at least here in the U.S. they're baby boomers, and you know we all remember the you pull the cork out and you get that. That's what people like. They like the sound. Now, maybe there's a way that you could get a sound to come out with Vinlock or something. I don't know, but people like the sound. So traditionally, a lot of your high-end suppliers of wine, uh, you know, that that 1%, you know, where people are paying hundreds of dollars for bottles of wine, those are traditionally always use cork closures. So um, there you go. <laughs> That's uh, Let us know if you come across a bottle that you think is cork, what your thoughts are. Maybe you want to try the saran wrap method to see if that helps or not. Just uh, something like that comes up, hit us up and let us know. Yeah, I would have. I would definitely have to try the um, the uh, cellophane method clandestinely. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to look good. In the group no one, no one would want to know, but me. <laughs> I could just imagine your wife. Oh no! What are you doing, Bill? Oh yeah, that's <laughs> that's just not going to fly on so many levels here. As usual, Bill's up to something else. What's he up to now? Thank goodness for the garage. <laughs> so hey, uh, one of our favorite retailers, at least one of my favorite retailers, I think it might be yours too. Uh, Bottle Barn is uh, joined the 21st century, and uh, they are. Uh, they have an online shop now, which is great for uh, people that don't live where we live. Because, um, you know, as far as um, uh, different different types of wines, regions, beers, um, um, they have probably bar none one of the one of the most diverse selections in Northern California, and they've had for for a while. And they've been in business for twenty eight years. Uh, last November they decided to uh, launch an online um, retail shop. And I, I believe it's mostly um, their um, liquors and, and hard to find wines and beers that, that they um, promote on that site. Have you seen the site, Bill? I haven't been to the site yet. No, but yes. I, it makes sense to me what you said about what they're retailing there. Cause they, you know, it opens up the audience, their audience or their customers, a larger market effectively, so they can turn stuff over faster potentially they just, or carry more inventory and then they get better deals. I don't know. I, I think it potentially will help their business. Yeah, I just, I, I've noticed whenever I, you know, I shop there maybe at least once or twice a month. Uh, and I've noticed that over the last year, year and a half, their selection has become more diverse and they've had more, um, uh, they stock more difficult to find producers, uh, you know, more uh, artisan producers. A lot of those things have made their way into their, into their, um, their stock. And I mean, it was very noticeable. I was like, my, they're, they're really stepping up their game there with some really cool stuff. Yeah. And I, I, yep. that's part of their doing their, um, their online presence also as, as, as part of that. Yeah, there is a beer they carry that you can't get elsewhere. Small, yeah. yeah, you know, yeah, that type of like, stuff. 
in fact, anything you kind of really want to drink that you might need to, uh, I think I was looking for some type of, of grapefruit soda, uh-huh. just randomly. Found it there. And, and yeah, they, you know, ran, it was ran, like they had it. And I was like, this is, this place is nuts. Uh, one of the things that uh, is sort of relevant to our little podcast here, it's it. Um, if we want to try something, if Al mentions, "Oh, hey, let's go, let's go taste this type of wine," and it's from somewhere, you know, old world or in New Zealand or somewhere or you know wherever, we we eventually end up in Bottle Barn and trying to <laughs> we end up with the same same wine. You know, it's yeah. sort of our go-to specialty shop, so it's sort of a dilemma. We're all—I mean, we're all so close to uh, uh, the folks in the city, uh, and that's you know, huge. We have a lot of—we have access to a lot of wine here. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a, a great wine store. So um, don't uh, if you're looking for something special, and also they, you know, I when I lately, it, it's funny. Um, the manager there, his name's Jason, so. When you walk in, you can go to the right, and he's, you know, he doesn't really have like a formal office, but there's this little, you know, I mean, it's literally is a barn. It's not a fancy place or anything. They it's just a warehouse. Got, yeah, they just got good there's stuff. There's no, yeah, there's no, um, <laughs> it, 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 well, I'll say it this way if you've been in the military, the military has their own, um, the commissary. Yeah, they have their own stores, and yeah. they have, you know, they have hardware store, they have, you know, food stores called a commissary. Well, the military, in its logistics system of characterization, they classify everything. Class 6 is alcohol, and they have a store, the Class 6 store. Yep. Well, the Bottle Barn looks exactly like every Class 6 store I've been into in my time in the military. <clears throat> Which yeah. includes my time as a kid in the military, because my dad used to take me in there, um, you know, buying uh, buying alcohol. So, and it was, you know, there were no taxes on the alcohol in the class six store. So it was, you know, you got good booze. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, the bottle barn is very much like that. It's a warehouse. I, I mean, it looks like a Costco without the massive racks. Yeah, and you can go. You can go there. And ask for the manager, and you're looking for something. You don't see it there. They'll, they'll order it. it for you. Yeah, they'll get it. I mean, they're they're super user friendly. So yep. I've ordered stuff there all the time. And what happens is like, I mean, I've even ordered like uh, there'd be something kind of strange and weird, and then I'll say to uh, Barry Herbs, he's the, he's the wine buyer. I'll I'll call him up and I'll say, hey Barry, I'm you know putting together uh, tasting for such and such, and I, I need um, this 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 and this. But you know, hey Barry, I don't want to buy a case of each one of these wines. So you know, how about uh, uh, a four pack or a six pack each, and he goes, ah, no problem. You'll yeah. just go, well, yeah, yeah, because he's kind of he's really into it. So he's always learning stuff. So consequently, what happens is wines that I have have bought and I have an interest in, they end up like being part of their regular stock on the shelf, which is good for me. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, that's a smart business too, right? Oh yeah. yeah you know, yeah. they're listening to their customers, and it's like, hey, you know, you have one customer that says this is good. You probably have more than one that likes that too. Just figuring all that out. Well, we'll segue into to smart business. Um, I think everyone that listens to this podcast, well, I mean, maybe I'm being a little presumptuous here, but I believe everyone that's listening has heard of Sutter Home White Zinfandel. And 
there's an article written by Jessica Zimmer. A lot of the old timers uh, got together uh, a few months ago, I believe this was now, and they were talking about uh, how Napa Valley's changed, uh, the business model. Um, some of the people gathered there was Richard Silvestrin. Um, they make great Cabernet. Um, um, the Ragushis were there. Uh, they're over on the, the east side of the valley, pinned into the hills. Uh, Angelina Mandavi was there. Um, so they had a lot of the old timers there talking about Napa Valley back in the day. These are people that had grown up. Um, their, their family were pioneers. And um, the focus was a lot of people talked about what the Chinqueros did. And the Chinqueros moved up, and they were in the valley in the 50s. And um, back then in the 50s, I think what they grew in, in the valley was, uh, God, walnuts, prunes. Yeah, it's stone fruit, maybe. Stone fruits, yeah, peaches, that type of thing. Yep. Um, but they, but um, they did start actually growing some uh, grape. Um, I mean, there were grapes were there too, but um, I think she said that uh, when they were there in the 40s, that there were only 15 wineries that were open. And one of the quotes I thought was great is that she said that, you could pull out on Highway 29 without looking. Try doing that today. Oh man, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't do that today. The other thing to remember, I you know that that I didn't see mentioned in the article is that you know all of these families who had farms there, you know, they all made their own wine for the family and for the farm. Yep. So there was a lot of wine making knowledge of people and generations who did that in the old world and had now come to the new world and their families had, you know, generationally increased there, but that knowledge stayed in the community. So it was ready to be tapped at some level. Um, As people figured out, there was a lot, and this article mentions this, wine was more money. Still farming, but a heck of a lot more money. Yeah, it was. I mean, that's really how it kind of got started was, uh, you know, I can make more money growing these grapes than I can uh, with, uh, you know, with these prunes. Dairy or dairy <laughs> where you get to milk cows so, every day. I mean, that's, you know, yeah, it's, a, you know, they're still getting up early, but they, you know, they can go on vacation. Yeah, yeah, they can, especially this time of year. And they're all on vacation right now while it's raining. Or so, some of the productive ones are down in South America, southern or somewhere else in the world, and they have wineries there. So, so the crux of this article, Bill, is that uh, how this all got started. It's all about how how um, the Trinqueros saved Zinfandel. They did, <laughs> and um, they used to make a Zinfandel, and um, or they still do actually. But they made a Zinfandel. But he was trying. To, um, Bob Trinquero was trying to make a stronger. Um, uh, Molto Forte uh, Zinfandel. So what he was doing was he was, um, you know, they, they put the grapes in the vat, you know, goes through the stemmer, and it's all in the tank. And uh, when it first gets in there, he was draining some of the juice out. And uh, when you do that, what you do is you get a stronger red blend. So he was taking some of the juice, and you got more skins to juice, which translates to a, you know, um, a, a more tannic, um, a more tannic finished wine. Um, and originally what they did was, uh, 
they tried to call it uh, Olie de Pedrix, which is, uh, I think, uh, Eye of the Partridge. But that didn't get accepted by the BAT, so they ended up uh, calling it White Zinfandel. And uh, they sold it. They just kind of sold it. And one year, uh, in 1975, um, they experienced a stuck fermentation from this juice that they just pulled off of the um, trying to make their goods in, this, um, this White Zinfandel. And a stuck fermentation is when the yeast... For whatever reason, they get confused and they don't. The wine's not fermented completely dry, so it had a little, um, actually, a, a good amount of residual sugar. I think maybe like two and a half percent. And um, hey, uh, they bottled it anyway. They bottled it, sent it out, and it was a hit. It was a massive hit. <laughs> so consequently, they ramped up production the next year to make the same thing. And uh, to make a long story short, they became the white Zinfandel kings. So if you're making this white Zinfandel, what do you need? Well, you need a lot of Zinfandel grapes. So instead of uh, Zinfandel was becoming less and less popular during those times, the grape that really started to take off was Chardonnay for Napa and also Cabernet Sauvignon, which was already there. Um, If you got some Zinfandel grapes, you got a Zinfandel vineyard, and you can make more money selling Chardonnay or Cabernet, what do you do? If you're a farmer, you chop the top off the vine and you graft it over to something that's more popular that you can make more money on. Uh, So by the Trinqueros making Zinfandel so popular, they made it less likely that grape farmers would um, change their Zinfandel um, production. And a lot of these, when you go through the valley now, you see all these old Zinfandel vines, and they're they're essentially there because of what Sutter Home did with white Zinfandel. I, you know, that, that is something this article answered. I wondered often why they were not completely gone, the, yeah. zin, the old Zin vines. But that's it makes complete sense. But it was it was a temporary thing for Napa because now it's extremely difficult, or not extremely difficult, but there's definitely less Zinfandel than oh. there was, say, 10 years ago. Yeah. And it's for- because, I mean, if you can get $100 for a bottle of Napa Cabernet, um, you're not going to be planting Zinfandel. No. The tops you're going to get for that would be maybe 50 bucks. No. And if you're you're going to, no, and you're going to, you might have Zinfandel as part of your, uh, uh, the wine that you make, but you'll get grapes from somewhere else. Yeah. And Zin- white Zinfandel, I don't, I don't think it's as big as it was, say, 15 years ago. I'm I, sure it's around, but yeah. And my assumption is that, you know, my guess would be that, you know, a lot of the white Zinfandel, gra- the grapes that you're going to find in white Zinfandel that you drink now are some grown somewhere in the central Valley. Yeah. 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 That's true. You know, or just some place that you would not expect. <laughs> Let me say it this way. Land costs and production costs are going to be very low. Yes. Yeah. Wherever yeah. that might be. Uh, those, those, Grapes grow in many climates too. They're they're those vines. They they can grow in a lot of places. So, dare I say, closer to maybe Fresno? Yep, for sure. They probably like it out there. Well, and yep. that I, so the article we we had one article that was referencing Clinker Brick. I think they're uh, maybe dealing with some uh, TTT TTP stuff, which we'll talk about yes. in a minute. But anyway, they're out. I, I forget where they're out. Um, in the Central Valley, but they're out there somewhere. Yeah, Clinker Brick is in. Um, God, where are they? I drove by there like about a year ago. 
there it's flat and it's high, but it's near the delta. It's near the delta. Yeah, there's lots of water, and you know, I mean, it's 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 kind of an interesting area, and the sand is you know, it's pretty poor soil, which grapes like. Yeah. Um, God, where is that? Where are they located? I can't remember. I'm, I'm looking now. right now. I'm looking right now. Lodi. Lodi, that's right. Lodi. Lodi is an interesting town. Yeah, there's the. Uh, they got it's like the whole Delta area. Like walking, God, sorry, it's like walking into yeah. the fifties. Yeah. You know, like going back to the fifties. They got these, especially when you go downtown. They got these old theaters, these old stores. Pretty, pretty interesting. You can get a, uh, a flavor of what uh, a lot of Northern California used to look like in the 50s. It's still got that retro retro feel. I think a lot of Southern California did too at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, where do we go from here, Bill? Uh, well, we, we, we referenced the government shutdown through the TTB. Um, there's a lot of... Um, I. I I, I've heard this from people at work. Uh, government shutdowns are not affecting me. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, there's a, uh, a number of articles we have that are talking about how it's going gonna, it's gonna to start soon. And one of the ways people might start to encounter it, certainly the producers have already started, is there's an agency that has to approve labels. And yep. they're not working. And so we've got you know, breweries that are suing the federal government because they have beer that they brew that they can't sell, that they've contracted to sell. Um, we've got wineries, you know, uh, waiting on labels for all of their next releases. How, what did they say? Like 500? They're getting 500, um, or their average is 500 a day they get in for label approval. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be a huge bottleneck. Um yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be, uh, I mean, it is tough and it's going to be tough for a lot of people in the business because this is the time that you lay out, especially if you're a producer, this is a time that you um, you uh, sign your new contracts with, with, with your suppliers. Yep. So, I mean, you know, you sign, about- you sign that based on what you sold. Yep. And you can't sell anything unless you have a label for it. So, I mean, it's just sitting in your warehouse. This, I mean, your cash flow is essentially nil. So this is this is not a small thing. Now, if I – is there – do you have to have federal approval as well as state approval? I think so, right? So there's like – is there like a dual approval process? Yeah, I think they're linked. They're linked together. I'm not, you know, sure of the – you know, how they're linked, but I know they are. So I heard a um... – Interestingly enough, a radio show that's on on one of our local stations here called Brouhaha, where mm-hmm. they talk about the beer industry, and they were talking about. I came in part like part away the conversation, but they and they have people who are in the you know who run breweries on this show, and they were you know discussing this label thing, and they were saying, yeah, it's a dual approval process. There should just be one, if I'm not mistaken. You know, somebody was recommending, well, like, just get the state approval and go. Federal government be damned. Ah, <laughs> and it's like they're going to have to catch up with it all. And I'm like, wow, that's that's really. And I, and I was like, well, if there's civil penalties for all of that, you could probably that's probably OK. But I'm like, 
Mm, it's alcohol. There's probably criminal penalties around doing this with the federal government. Now, you know, federal federal crime. That's like mm, that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I would I would hold off. I, I think this is going to affect. This is going to affect uh, beer makers more than it is. I mean, in the short term, beer makers it'll it'll affect them more because they have a, a tendency to make a special batch. With, with, which needs approval for a special label. Yep. Um, also, barrels have to be a, beer it, can only last. Yeah. What I mean, it's only good for friggin' three months, right? And then yeah, it's past best, its best, drink and, date. Yeah, and you, you look three month old beer. You don't really want to drink that. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> so I, I mean, mean, it's not I, bad or anything. It's not going to hurt you or anything. It's just it loses all its flavor by that time. Right. So I, I, I personally think it's going to be. A, it's really going to affect craft brewers more than it's going to affect. Uh, the the wineries it will affect the wineries for their short term because they you know for their quick uh for their quick buck wines you know all these you know rosés all the all the rage so i'm sure a lot of these wineries have already submitted or are in the process submitting their new rosé labels when i say a new label the label might not change that much but the one thing on the label that does change is the date yeah the date so it's made in 2016 or 2017 now you gotta put the 2018 that changes the label that's got to be approved and hey, you know, do not think that there are people right now out there somewhere, you know, on the bubble with regard to, you know, especially in the brewer's case. Well, I just made another batch of this beer. It's just a little bit different, but I'm keeping the same label. Boom. Yes. yes. Now that's the way around it right there. Yeah. That's, that's the way around it. Yeah. So, I mean, if you come up with a different fanciful name for a beer, I mean, you're going to just you could just kind of change that name and roll it into what you already have approved. So that's one way around it. Yep. I don't think you can do that with wine because you're dealing with vintages. Yeah, maybe. But, yeah. Depends maybe. on how desperate you are. Well, that vintage last year sold pretty well. We just found a whole new 5,000 cases of it. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. They- they're pretty. They're pretty much sticklers on what's in what tank and what doesn't go. Oh, you can all the papers no, I, I understand. No, no, I, I, I do. I am just. I'm making a joke at, at, at some point there. But all, all kidding aside, this goes through everything. So there aren't people looking at labels. There aren't as many inspectors inspecting meat, or dairy, or you know, start naming uh, all this. The start naming the food supply, and it, you know. I mean, the shutdown is going to affect consumers in that in that aspect. In that, there just aren't a, a lot of people paying attention, and we've had, you know, some significant issues with our food supply recently, like the whole um, romaine lettuce thing. Yes, where they're just like the or the E. coli breakout over you know lettuce. You know, there was a tainted, there was a tainted. Um, facility i believe it also shows you how narrow the food supply is so if that can affect romaine lettuce at the scale of the u.s what happens if something happens to chickens yeah it's uh well you know i I just hope it gets worked out i know that they're 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 really spending a little bit more time with trying to figure out how to work it out um you know this isn't this has nothing to do with wine but i i think if uh if the uh compensation of uh, our 540 uh, legislators that we have 
um, uh, making our laws, if their compensation was, um, let's just say, uh, suspended until something like this was, uh, un until there was a resolution to it. Uh, you think, thinks, quicker, you think res resolution. You think people might get to the table sooner? Yeah. <laughs> just a little bit? So, yeah, holding up holding up the regular Joes is not cool, man. I, I Hopefully they'll, they'll change that around. Yeah, that you're 100% correct. It should be completely inverted. And the people, I mean, you're not going to hurt a lot of those people by taking their salary away, but you yeah. will hurt them by like, well, we don't have enough money to pay all the security guards in the in, in the Congress in the White House right now. So we're going to deploy them to the people who we, you know, we have a limited amount. So, And you guys can first figure out who's going to get protected. Yeah. And then, you know, if you get a deal, you can get more people on. It's a good idea. I don't I don't know that that's going to happen. Driver, because... Your driver's not going to be there. Um, you know, we don't have a the cooks, the people, you. your, the commas, the, they have a, they have a beautiful uh, dining facility. I mean, it's, it's linen, uh, silver and China that they eat in every day. I believe they don't pay for that, or if they do, it's very it's it's a, it's subsidized. So let's yeah. turn that off. Let's turn their coffee makers off wherever they're going to get their lattes, and they're some paying for all this stuff. Yeah. Any well, of those what perks? About the, what about the the spa and the uh, the exercise room and all that stuff? Sure. What whatever whatever perks they have that they <laughs> that the that you know the person that gets up and is working at at Taco Bell and the Verizon store don't get every day, and let's see what happens. Well, there definitely would be some quicker movement, I think. Let's That's see what off. happens. And why aren't we out like with pitchforks telling them to do that? Yeah, yeah, I know, man. We're like uh, we're like lambs. Yeah, sheeple, <laughs> just the sheeple. No, yeah. but I seriously, I hope it gets worked out and these people get back to work. And you know, we're gonna we're gonna start seeing it in the you know in the food we consume. It's, it's a hard enough business already, and um, actually um, uh, the wine business in general here in, in the U.S. is slowing down uh, because they're, they're losing their, um, their big pocket spenders or, you know, well, they're dying, for one. And um, uh, the millennials, uh, they have a much more uh, diverse taste for um, beverages, than, than we do so they're um they're all for new things uh i don't think millennials are embracing the tasting rooms uh that we have they're more into um, uh, different types of ways to to get acquainted and learn about wine the idea of driving up to a tasting room in napa valley and taking on all the extra expense of the tasting fees it's just not as attractive to a millennial um a drinker yeah and they're gonna you know I wonder if that, how, if and how that will change as that generation ages. There's no doubt that the tasting room experience is is changing. There are plenty of wineries that are adapting. I mean, just go to Peelsburg and take a look at, at you know, some of the tasting rooms. There are more experiences or, you know, it's sit down. It's like sit down, somebody's waiting on you almost like you're yeah. in a wine bar. Although you're in one winery's tasting room, sometimes they're combining tasting rooms, so you can have different wines from different producers. 
um, there's experiences where you go have private tasting. It's just you and maybe the winemaker. You pay for that, but there are people that will, there are people shelling that out, and and always have, but it's just much more. Um, I I think they're doing it in a way that allows millennials to access that, and that's the type of experience they want when they come here. At least that's what I'm hearing, and I've seen some of it. Well, how do you how do you fix that? You know that old world. This is the way we do it, and this is the way we've always done it, and we've been successful. And then you have a corporate entity like um, Constellations coming to Napa Valley, and they're uh, launching their new prisoner um, label in their prisoner tasting room, which is uh, where the old um, Franciscan winery was. It's a totally different thing, man. They've got two commercial kitchens. They've got chefs there. They've got artwork. I mean, it's a whole... It's it's like a it's like a Disneyland for for yeah. food and wine yeah. when you go in there. Well, that's one of the reasons I like to go to Lou Preston's winery. <laughs> oh yeah, yes. you know he's got you know he's got olive oil and bread, and he's got the wood fired oven going, and there's summertime there's vegetables. It's it it it's easy to say that it's a destination. He's created a place that you can go and spend an afternoon in. Um. Or you can end up at the end of the day and eat and hang out. What do you do if you're uh, if you're Constellations and and uh, Napa County slaps a, yeah, a well, violation that's... code on you for selling jellies and jams? I mean, come on, you can't sell jellies and jams, and you got you got you got to stop selling your art. It's like that's like a draw, right? Yeah, I um. I don't understand the. Uh, I don't understand why they're doing that, but I guess it's against some rule somebody created. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, that's what's happening to them. They're getting yeah, told to cease and desist, right? Yeah, or they're going to they get are. fined. Get... Yeah, yeah, they're going to get fined. I mean, you could go in there, you could taste four or five wines for one hundred twenty-five dollars. Each tasting's paired with a different course, prepared by six chefs. Uh, one course is A5 Wagyu beef. I mean, this is a, hey, hey, look, this is a good experience. Yeah, for 125 bucks. I mean, I, look, that's a lot. You know, that's not cheap for a tasting, but to have it paired with that type of food. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, but Napa County doesn't want them to do that. <laughs> They're like, nah, not so much. Well, I'm laughing because it's absurd. Why would you not? I mean, can they not part? I, what's the problem? Well, it's like because they're I not do, allowed to do that. Their use permit doesn't allow them to do that. That's the problem. What I what it's what I think widely, you know, if you look at the big picture, it's like if you had a business and you um, you bought a space in a strip mall, and there was a guy down the way that was making pizzas, but your place was a deli, but in your deli you decided to make pizzas also. Chances are. In the contract that you sign with the owners of the of the of the strip mall, there's a, a a clause that says there's no compete. You can't make pizzas in your and this is kind of the same thing. They're saying, hey, you got a winery. What are you doing selling jams? We got grocery stores that are selling jams and jellies. So you're cutting in on their business. So it's like that's really what's going on. Yeah, it's, I mean it's regulate it's regulation it's regulating the business and the economy they're regulating trying to regulate the market i don't you know i don't think that's a good re that's a good recipe 
So which which brings us to uh, recipes, which brings us to Tom Wark, um, who's had a um, he's a wine industry public relations guy that's uh, been in this area for, man, over 25, 30 years, I think, has a pretty successful wine blog. Um, it's pretty industry centric, but he's moving. He's moving his family to Willamette Valley from uh, he lives in Napa. And he's moving to Willamette Valley, and they uh, found themselves a 3,000-plus square foot house on nearly a third of an acre in a very nice part of uh, Salem for uh, under 500K. Yeah. You're not going to do that in Napa. No. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> add a million dollars, maybe. <laughs> not even – it'd be higher than that. A third of an acre, 3,000 square foot property. I mean, that's – so he, in his, uh, he, he does a, a, a cheeky little uh, exit poll on himself of, you know, basically why he's leaving the county. And, um, you know, it's not a – the county is, is horrible. It's just, hey, if you want to stem the flow of people like me who really love this area from leaving the area, here's some things that you should do. And he's got a list of about uh, five things that uh, – Napa, Napa, Napa County, the permitters should actually look at and maybe make some changes. Did you get an opportunity to look at them? Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I would say, I would say the treatise's article is that the government of Napa and, and the government of Napa County is completely focused in the wrong places. They're not focused on preserving the wine culture and history of the county. They're not focused on the education and the educational institutions in the county. And they're focused on regulating the business. And not the business, not the environment, the business. <laughs> I agree. The, the business is within the it, – it's it's like you have a successful business, you can't make more money. Not doing anything bad to the environment. <laughs> yeah. You're not taking somebody else out. We're just going to decide that. And he alludes to this at the very beginning of the article, where he's saying that there, are, there, there are power constituencies, people that have a lot of money, who can influence the county government, mm -hmm. and that's what's happening. That's why you're seeing cease and desist uh, orders at at um, the prisoner winery for selling jelly. Yeah. Somebody well with enough money is upset to go, go get the county's people yep. to, to, to go write that letter. It's exactly what happens. I see it in this county. Yeah, well put. It's true. Yeah, the one thing that I saw, that it's right in the middle. His, uh, his third point is that they got to do something about the lack of housing. But, you know, that's not just something that's um, Napa-centric. That's just basically all over Northern California. Yep. I, I, I'm going to go right back to my point about the government focused in the wrong place. You're focused on constricting that ability to build instead of figuring out how to enhance the ability to build. So, I, I mean, our own state, our own state legislature rejected our governor's last governor's attempt to try to revisit the um, approval requirements, the environmental approval requirements and processes for construction projects. Basically, take a look at what's known as the California CEQA law, mm -hmm. which gets invoked anytime a business needs to build something, basically, that hasn't been looked at before. And it's it adds massive cost. 
But the government, just like, you know, they're doing in um, Napa, and we are the government. We elected these people. Um, Stop reminding me, man. Well, I'm just saying, (laughs) you know, they're, they're, they're being used as a tool for somebody else who has money to accomplish that goal versus the wide majority. Um, but yeah, it's really, and I think it's a treaty of like, I, I read this stuff and it's like, this could be Sonoma County, you know, and building housing. I mean, we got land. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, well, even with the, even just right now, you can see how difficult the process is uh, since the fires, the homes were already on land and they've been erased by fire. It's difficult to get those homes built. Yeah. All right. I will tell you in Sonoma County what I've heard and what I've read, though, is that the government actually has done a good job of rapidly approval, uh, approving uh, housing. And a lot of what's happened is the insurance company regulation. Yep. I've heard it's, that, too. It, it's not so much the government. In fact, the government actually – it's actually an example of how the government can be used effectively – while all of a sudden have these guys figured out how they can get a house approved in you know in in a in a couple of days versus used to take three weeks yes yes so okay i i get the inefficiency so now we've learned that we can operate in that efficient environment why don't we do more of that that's what business would do because you'd be out of business yes so and i think the shutdown to tie this back into the shutdown it's encouraging some of these these conversations of like well do we really need all these people? Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't, obviously. It's the whole thing about... Yeah. And it's like, mean, hmm. part of it. And, you know, if we pay attention, we can spend our money better. All the way to the point that the people who are making decisions aren't really focused on helping us out. Like getting labels approved for our businesses, ensuring that we can build when we need to build. And, you know, everyone's suffering. Yeah. 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 This is uh, the, the part that I, you know, I'm, I'm sure somebody's going to um, actually put together a spreadsheet and they're going to, you know, they're going to put together an, in, um, an economic uh, impact study after this is all done. And there's going to be more money lost by more businesses and more people than they were fighting over to begin with. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I it's, it's, it is, it is, it is sort of preposterous. The whole thing. Yeah, there's no no democracy like ours. That's well, true. Um, uh, speaking of governments, uh, just real quick, Bill, I had to mention this. I, I think we just spoke briefly about this, but <clears throat> uh, the son of uh, Andrea Moretti, um, they uh, they've been kind of looking for one of his boats. Yeah, uh, his yacht. <laughs> they found it. He's that. Um, uh, He's, he's uh, he and his dad and uh, a bunch of their family members at other properties. They they're under house arrest, but they just haven't been able to find his luxury boat. Uh, do share, Bill, what you got out of that article? Yeah. So okay. So the first thing they got out of the article was literally the fourth word, which was, and I'm I'm probably going to butcher the Italian. You correct it. The Guardia di Fianzana, and I'm yeah. like. Do the Italians have a guard of finance? Is this the financial police? They have their own financial police? Really? Holy smokes. And then I kept reading, and I'm like, of course they do. They're looking for the yacht of Andrea Moretti. They found the yacht, man. They found it in uh, in Pisa, uh, parked in a 
parked in a shed in a garage. Yeah, nine hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars worth euros worth. Excuse me, nine hundred fifty thousand euros worth of yacht. That's a million dollar plus boat. Yeah. Yes. That's not a that's not a dinghy. A boat. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and it keeps getting better. I still am not sure who owns the boat. What company literally owns the boat? Yeah, it's they, gone through a few different companies uh, with name changes. Oh and, my goodness! Uh, it has escaped it, the boat itself, like an entity, as by boats <laughs> are, escape seizures. It's oh. it's pretty incredible. Obviously, the boat means a lot to the young man. Um, In a self-laundering uh, investigation. I don't even know what a self-laundering How do you self-launder? I guess you, well, you handed off your relatives. That's what happened. Well, here's the problem. Um, a lot of this laundering, this money, it ends up in Swiss bank accounts. And, you know, Swiss Switzerland is a neutral company or a country. So they're not, you know. <laughs> yes, once... company would be probably right. <laughs> That's right. The, a little slip, slip of the tongue yeah. here. <laughs> the bankers were always, you know, Goldman Sachs, all these bankers. Well, the Europeans were really smart. The bankers there, they just got a country. <laughs> they started a long time ago. Go to Switzerland. If you think I'm kidding, go to Switzerland. Just go to Switzerland. It's, it's pretty awesome, man. It's not. I'm just, just go there. Anybody you know that has real money, they go to Switzerland. Yeah, that's true. Their kids go to Swiss schools. <laughs> Anyway, uh, well, and it's a well, lot of money to go live there. Like, if you're just going to go live there, they want a lot of money. Yeah, so the the, the article is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a short article, but I've been kind of keeping an eye on it because I'm kind of, I'm just interested to see what's going to happen here because this family owns, they own so many different types of businesses. You know, they're, they're clothing magnets, uh, shoe magnets, uh, uh, produce magnets, wine magnets. They've got businesses all up and down the peninsula, so... If if they're under house arrest for money laundering, um, I, you know it, it really affects a, a lot of people. So I'm just uh, I just I just thought it was interesting because they're going around they're trying to collect all of these all of their assets is what they're doing, and because uh, they're probably going to end up, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the stuff that's in Switzerland, they're not going to get that. They're not going to get that gone. money. It's gone. Yeah. So they just have to uh, collect the physical assets. So that's what they're doing. Uh, we should start wrapping it up. Though. What do you think? Oh, I think we're good. I think we yeah. can uh, end on that note uh, as they they look. I still don't know what the name of the boat is, by the way. The yacht. I've, well, it's called Lap Endo right now, but I'm not sure what the real name is. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, Sir Lapo, whatever. Let's see. What is it? There's a picture of it here. Uh, yeah, Lapo Edo, Lapo Edo, London on it, Lapo Edo. I know, I don't, I don't know. It's, pr it's pretty, it's a large boat, man. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's something so, else. So uh, anyway, uh, what do you, what have you been drinking lately? You know, more of the same, really. Um, we went to, uh, we did go to Russian River Brewery last night. So I had wow. some fine Pliny the Elder. Which one? The, the original or the Yeah, one? the Elder. The one they have on tap all the time. Younger's not out yet. No, no. I mean, which? which oh, not the new one. Just downtown. Okay. Um, in Santa Rosa. I And I was, you know, it's... Uh, the brew pub is, you know, in a fashion of 
uh, a, a true tasting room. It's very uh -huh. rustic feel to it. If you haven't been there, um, it's worth going. Food's good. Beer is delicious. Pliny the uh, Elder as an IPA is a. Um, um, it's just a. It's a. It's a beautifully made IPA. Just super well balanced. Very clean finish. Very light. And the younger, which is a double, triple IPA, I believe. And it has a very, you know, it has very traditional um, IPA, West Coast IPA notes. So that floral, the uh, floral smell, the hops mm -hmm. are all balanced. I forget how many different types of hops he uses. It's at least five. Um, a really, really nice beer. And it's, you know, I think it's, it's eight or nine. It's, it's pretty hot. Oh, might be boy. eight. Might be eight, yeah. six. Yeah, you gonna have one of those. Yeah, I, 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 the hop blend in that beer with the with the alcohol content, it's you can have like two of them. You drink three of them, you're, it's a whole new experience. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I want to drink three of no, those. No, and, and you know you're talking about um, doing that over the course of a while. So like you know an entire afternoon, you know, noon to watching a football game, noon to five. Might have well, a couple we, have, of we do have some football games coming up today. I'm so, just saying. Uh, I'm just saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm just listening. And then the other, um, the other, and what's not to like being people bringing you food and beer. <laughs> um, the other beer that we have there that we like is they make a really nice pilsner. Um, mm -hmm. It's a little, it has a little bit of, like if you taste a Lagunitas pilsner, it tastes like a Pilsner IPA. I don't know how else to describe it, okay. <laughs> but it's got all these IPA notes. It's kind of it's got kind of that wheat taste to it, a um, mm -hmm. little bitter. You know, it's got some bitterness in it. I mean, and more so than a traditional. Uh, you're going to find a traditional Pilsner, but the the one at um, what I like about the one at Russian River is it has a little bit of that uh, homage, if you will, to an IPA. Right. Um, but it's super clean and it's finished. You know, you get that sort of bubbly finish on the end of your tongue as you're drinking it. That sort of champagne um, kind of finish feeling you might feel on a really crisp Pilsner. That's where people will say it's crisp. It's kind of stuff that you're feeling on the palate, at least to me. Um, so that's good. And then the last thing I'll say about Russian River is they're about to release their annual Pliny the Younger Triple IPA. It's the beer that people travel. You know, there's... There's always somebody standing in line for a long time, you know, yeah. lines around the block. Now, this year, I believe they're going to do the release at both of their breweries, so it, I, or both locations, both in uh, Santa Rosa as well as in Windsor. Okay. Oh, so that'll make it nice. Maybe so, the line won't be as long yeah. as uh, it usually is. I mean... I'm not. I know people that do it, but um, that's that doesn't mean that much to me. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> what I found is you just gotta um, you just gotta uh, check in with them. We usually just, you know, I'll take a tool around the block to see what the line looks like. Uh huh. Or, you know, if you know enough people in town, <laughs> somebody might sneak you in the back door. Ah, well, yeah, you got. You got so that's a, happened well, before. That's your old haunting ground, so you got a little pull. Yeah, so that's just you know, but that all, if they're not busy, you know, they will. Uh, they'll let you in the back door. I I got no pull, man. 
they're they're not letting me in. Uh, I mean, so, sometimes it's literally just like it's not that busy, and they'll just that's uh, become less and less possible. But it, it can happen. They really don't want to do that. I think they're trying to. The city's probably clamped down on the fire code, so they're probably. Yeah. But Windsor, I'm told, is massive. Yeah, I've seen pictures of it. I drove, I drove by last week, and I thought, well, i got to get up here, I guess. So I gotta Yeah, get, it's worth gotta, checking out. Yeah. And they're always brewing something interesting at that at that brewery. I didn't have anything last night. I hadn't had a plenty maybe, in a while. so Maybe we could go up there together, and uh, you know, it would be an excuse for us to get together and talk about Vino 101. Yeah, right. Oh, no, that's, that's what, good. That's, that's what we'll tell the wives. Anyway. Yeah. Hey, we, you know... <laughs> You know, what do you think winemakers and brewers do when they go talk when they talk business? They're yeah. having somebody somebody brought them something to drink, so they're going to open it. Or when they're making wine too. Oh yeah, well, Come it on. takes a lot of beer to make good wine. That's what I've been. So I've been told. It is true. It is true. How about yourself? What have you been having? Oh, I've been having uh, a couple standout bottles for me. Um, Getting back into the pizza lately, drinking oh, pizza or eating pizza. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the bottle that I'm uh, enamored with of late, it's called Casina Feipu di Masoretti Rivera Ligura di Ponente. And you can't say that a whole bunch, but essentially it's Pigato. Yeah, I was going to say an Italian. To say. It's an Italian white wine, and then I was going to say it's a white wine. Yeah. And um, pretty it's Pagato, it's yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty cool label. It's, cool. it's uh, there's not a whole bunch of this made. Uh, the alcohol's pretty uh, pretty good on it, thirteen and a half percent alcohol. Um, the family is um, they started this estate. Uh, well, actually, I should say where it's from. It's from um, Liguria, and uh, Liguria is uh, the area that's just below um, Piemonte in northwest Italy. And it's just a little, like a, almost a upside down L shaped portion that's right on the Mediterranean. So you got the Mediterranean, and you got a little land between that, and then you got the hills that are going into uh, Piemonte. So uh, they they bought this property back, um, I think, uh, in the 30s or 40s. And um, they started, it used to be just, uh, it was planted with, I believe, just like vegetables. And um, they started clearing it out in the 60s. And um, Pigato is one of the main white varieties that's grown in Liguria, um, along with, uh, what else do they grow there? Uh, Vermentino. Uh, so I think the wines are, they say Vermentino and Pigato are similar. Um, or ex- extremely similar when you actually look at the vine. It's difficult to tell them apart, but they do taste different. Um, uh, this wine is um, uh, the, the guy that uh, started it was uh, his name was uh, Pipo, or no, excuse me, Filippo. Uh, Filippo, and that's why on the label it says Feipu, because uh, Feipu is um, Italian dialect for Filippo, Philip. Um, it's uh, small production. I think they only have, uh, I think it's seven and a half hectares. So what is that? Um, it's about 20 acres. Yeah. Not, not very much land. 
Um, it's all it's done all in stainless steel. It's ferment cold fermentation stainless steel, and they leave it um, they leave uh, leave it in the tank with the leaves, all the dead um, yeast that fall to the bottom. They leave it all in the tank for about fifty to sixty days, so it gets a little character of of the leaves. Um, it's light golden color, um, almost uh, going towards like yellow. Um, the nose is honeyed apples, and I get like a petroly type of thing, like petrol. Yeah, might not sound good to people, but it it tastes good when you're tasting it, and um, uh, it's a, a good amount of minerality and almost like a little salinity to it. And I think that's just because it's near the near the ocean. Uh, it goes great with uh, anything, any pasta that has pesto on it. Uh, that's it's just a it's just a it's a marriage made for the two, and that's where that area is where they um, they make um, all the pesto dishes. Um, they do the pestos with the potatoes and the um, uh, sounds weird pasta and potatoes, but they do a pesto with uh, potatoes and uh, green beans. I've had that when I've been there. It's pretty fantastic. But this wine would go great with it. It's a good buy. It's eighteen twenty bucks. Where did you uh, get it? Uh, did I you got order it, or did you get it at a uh, shop? This one I ordered. I got it from uh, Wine Wine Exchange in LA, and I think it's something that they they regularly stock. But you can get it also at Kermit Lynch. I believe Kermit Lynch stocks uh. it. So he always stocks these uh, interesting um, uh, oddball type of things. I like to call them, but uh, you know, like to, if you want to stretch your palate, that's that's definitely something to try. Uh, the second wine is this one I talked about it earlier. Yeah, the Coli Masari, and uh, this is from um, the area of Montecuco. Montecuco is a pretty recent. Uh, uh, government regulated area. I think it just became a DOC maybe back in like 1999, 2000. So it's pretty new, but it's predominantly uh, Sangiovese. It's uh, Sangiovese, uh, Chilegelo, and uh, it's 10% Cabernet, but it's 80% Sangiovese. This area is an interesting area because it's close to, it's, it's sandwiched between some very uh, notorious areas. And one is the Maremma which is the body of land that's on the Mediterranean Sea where all of the high-end um, super Tuscans are made. Um, Sassacaya, uh, you know, all of these $300 bottles of wine are made in Maremma. And this is just north of that. But it's also very close to uh, the Montalcino area where they make all of the great Brunellos. So... Uh, like I said, this is the one I've had one. I thought it was corked. And then I had this bottle just three or four days ago and it's fantastic. It's not the greatest deal. Um, I think they go for the current vintage is 20, 22 to 25 bucks. Um, this is the 2013 I had the 2015 is a much better vintage. I'm getting ready to, to try a 2015 here real soon. This winery was named the Gambero uh, Rosso winery of the year in 2014. So obviously the price of their wines went up precipitously after that. Um, when I was over in Italy six years ago, 
we discovered this wine. It was at one of the old organic, it was at an organic um, uh, wine shop. And when you walk in, it was pretty cool. You'd walk in and the, the women from the town, it was mostly women. I never saw a guy walking in. They'd come in because I would like checking out all their bottled wine selections. They'd come in with their jugs and the guy had a vat there and he would just fill up their jug and you paid by the, you know, by the liter. So we found uh, this wine and uh, actually over the time that we were there, we were in that area for 10 days. We bought all the wine that they had for this and just this is all we drank. <laughs> so, so I got to know it pretty well. So um, that's what I got. That's what I uh, those are my two highlights as far as balls. I've been drinking a lot of stuff, but those are the two that are uh, pretty good. And actually, I'll be having some of that Pagato today while I'm watching the um, the uh, NFC and the uh, the NFL championship games, which are starting in uh, less than 30 minutes, I think. Bill, I've lost you. Where are you? Did you hit your cough button? No. Oh, there you are. You're back. That's weird. I thought it wasn't, but yeah, I hit the cough button. The... Um, <laughs> You said you're making pizzas. Are you making pizza or are you procuring it from somewhere, a little both? Uh, a little bit of both. Uh, I think I'm going to make uh, some pizza today because I got some leftover mozzarella and I got some leftover sauce. So as soon as I'm done here, I'm just going to whip up a dough. Usually I'll whip it up and uh, I won't use it till the next day, but this is going to be a fast one. I'm just going to go ahead and uh, proof it let, it, let it go for a couple hours and let her rip. Yep, it's... Uh... It, it definitely changes it if you let it cold ferment or yeah. stick in the fridge, let it slow down a little bit. But uh, That's right. I forget you're a pizza guy. You know all about this. I like the pizza, yes. I like <laughs> to make the pizza, too. The um, just It's just like everything else made that like we like to drink and make. It's all about the water. Yeah. It's um, certainly in beer and wine. I mean, beer and pizza. But anyway, that sounds delicious, and uh, it should be good. some good games. Should be. So, everybody, um, thank you for listening. We appreciate it. If you guys got any questions, you have any comments, uh, don't hesitate to contact us via How Bill. How do they contact us? Oh, they can hit us up on Twitter at uh, slash Vino101net. They can leave a comment on the blog. Um, or they can just email us at info at Vino101.net. Fantastic. All right. Well, hey, thanks, Bill. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Appreciate thank it. You. Cheers. Cheers.